Open your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, page 1032. Uh, the, the notes say 1031, so if you follow the notes, you're just one page off. Uh, I forgot to check before I printed the, uh, the handouts, but it's page 1032. We are picking up where we left off at, in August. So it's been a while since we've been in Matthew, and some of you would have preferred some warning uh, and would have read ahead, and uh, so we're in Matthew for the time being, and uh, so you can continue now to read ahead. I'm not sure how much we'll cover next week, uh, still trying to get myself oriented to being back in the book of Matthew, but uh, today we'll be looking at verses 1 through 5. We've reached the last chapter of the greatest sermon ever preached, what is known by many as the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus has gathered his disciples around him on this mountain and is teaching his disciples what life in the kingdom of heaven is all about. So far, Jesus has corrected the corrupt doctrine of the Pharisees and the corrupt practices of the Pharisees. You can see that in, in, in chapter 5 specifically. He has also made it clear that your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And that's one of the hardest things to understand of how we can have a righteousness that is greater than the most uh, law-focused, law-abiding religious people uh, that we, can, we would ever know. Um, but he also warned against the wrong kind of righteousness, which was the Pharisees' greatest problem. So right actions with wrong motives doesn't please God nor will they be rewarded by God. Right actions must be connected to right motives. And the fundamental motive for a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is loving God as the great treasure of your life. That is the core heart attitude of a Christian. A citizen of the kingdom of heaven is loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And out of that attitude comes all of the other heart motivations and attitude that are necessary for the right kind of righteousness to be lived out. Now in chapter 7, we move to the last topic, how love for God is lived out in relationships. In verses 1 through 5, we'll look at relationships with our brothers, especially as it comes to how we address sin in our, in our lives and in their lives. Also, with those who are obstinately wicked, relationship with our Heavenly Father, relationship with our neighbors in general, as well as to fellow disciples and the false prophets and the Lord Jesus himself. That's chapter 7. So even though the Lord's words may seem to be almost random, maybe haphazard at a quick reading, he moves from issue to issue in this chapter in connections that once again deal with heart attitudes heart attitudes specifically in relationship to relationships with others and how that's lived out. And so that's a quick recap to get us into the context of chapter 7. Before we read the scripture, let us pray together. Father, we need your help, especially this morning, because we are dealing with a topic that gets to the heart, gets to the heart of spiritual blindness, blindness to our own sin. And Lord, we, we need the work of the Holy Spirit this Sunday, as much as any Sunday, but maybe even more so, because without the illuminating work, we will not see ourselves. We will not see ourselves in the Scripture. We will not see where we are sinning. We will not see where we need to change. So please, Lord, open our eyes to see where our needs are and what needs to change in us, that we might be transformed, that we might repent 
that we might be changed for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 7, 1 to 5, follow along in your Bible as I read. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Listen to it this morning. Our theme this morning is King Jesus has the authority to tell his disciples what true justice is and how to practice it. King Jesus has the authority to tell his disciples what true justice is and how to practice it. Jesus is teaching us in this passage how to conduct ourselves in reference to the faults of others. And it seems to stay in the context with the whole sermon, seems intended as a reproof to the Pharisees who were guilty of three things in relationship to their judging of others. First of all, the Pharisees had developed a personal, not biblical standard of judgment. They had taken the law of God and had twisted it and had changed it and had modified it to fit what they wanted. And so they did not have a biblical standard for judgment. They had a personal standard for judgment, and that's wrong. Secondly, they had developed a double standard, judging others by a different standard than the standard they used for themselves. So they had an unbiblical standard to start with because they had changed God's word to make their own standard, but then they did something worse on top of that. They had two standards, one for others and one for themselves. And the result of those two things is self-righteousness. If you were to think of a picture of self-righteousness and look it up in the dictionary, you would want to see a picture of the Pharisees. Whatever a Pharisee looked like, you'd want a picture of those guys. They were self-righteous. And what is self-righteousness? The conclusion that they were better than others because they were living up to one standard applied graciously to themselves and another standard applied unmercifully to others. I want you to hear that clearly. What happens with a double standard and what happens with your own standard is it leads to self-righteousness, which means in those two standards, I then apply the looser, easier standard to myself, and I apply it graciously. But with the second, more stricter standard that I apply to others, I am unmerciful in the way I apply that to others. And if you look through the Gospels and you see the Pharisees and their treatment of others and the way that they use the law, you will see that they struggle with this the entire time. And so Jesus is not only talking about the corrupt doctrine of the Pharisees, the corrupt practices of the Pharisees, but here the corrupt attitude and heart motivation and the judgment that comes from it. And so let's look at the text. The command, first of all, the command in verse 1, judge not. The command is don't judge hypocritically. Don't judge hypocritically. Now, this is one of the most used and abused verses in the entire Bible. How many times have you heard over and over, don't judge lest ye be judged. That's the King James Version, by the way. Judge not lest ye be judged. 
And people will quote that. I hear it quoted, I heard it quoted two or three times over the, the last two weeks in different settings. On the news, uh, on TV programs, don't judge lest you be judged. And this is universally understood to mean that no one should render judgment on anyone else. No one can say that what anyone else is doing is wrong. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Right? That's what it means. That's how people use it. And the universal complaint to any judgment by others is linked to that, which is, who are you to judge? Who are you to judge? Even the Pope, when asked a question about homosexual priests, said this, if a person is gay and seeks God and has goodwill, who am I to judge? I'll tell you this, if the Pope can't judge, then nobody can judge, right? At least that's the mindset of the world. I mean, the person who's supposed to be bringing all the judgment, at least to the Roman Catholic Church, says, I'm not even to judge somebody. This attitude is so permeated our culture and so permeated religion that we take what Jesus says here as the fact that no one is to render judgment on anyone else. Yet I've never found anyone to hold this view consistently. Here's my point. If all judgment is wrong, then how can you judge someone for judging others? Let me see if I'm, did you catch that? If someone says, you can't judge others, because you just did that, you made a judgment on others, and they say, you can't judge others, what have they just done? They just judged you for judging others. You can't live this out consistently. So this position is self-defeating and irrational when anyone wants to use Jesus' words to condemn anyone else, even for violating Jesus' words, at least their perception and their understanding of what they mean. So what does this mean? Well, the word judge here has a very large semantic domain, a very large range of usage. It can mean to separate, to choose, to select, to determine, to analyze, evaluate, or even condemn, which is how many people take the word at all times. Any sort of judgment is a condemnation, the strongest use of the word judge. Now, the question is, what does Jesus mean by his use of it in this context? Because it can mean a number of things. Before I answer the question, I want to tell you what it can't mean. It can't mean that there are no, no moral absolutes whereby we can determine right and wrong. It can't mean that there are no moral absolutes whereby we can determine right and wrong. The reason for that is because the entire sermon up to this point has been given to to demonstrate the difference between true and false religion. It's been shown, and Jesus preached to say, this is wrong and this is right. You have heard it said, but I say to you, people live this way, you should live that way. If Jesus wasn't teaching to demonstrate right from wrong, to give us a, a basis for analysis, basis for condemnation, so to speak, then what is he doing? Jesus is preaching so that we have an accurate standard for critical discernment. So if by these words Jesus says you shouldn't critically discern anything, you shouldn't pass any judgments on anyone, then what has Jesus been doing for two chapters? He's been violating his own teaching, and that would be irrational and foolish. So it can't mean that. Therefore, it can't mean that we can't criticize or discern. It also can't mean that we can't form an opinion of another person's spiritual condition. I want to show you to that, show you that right in the very context. In verse 5 and 6, Jesus said, says, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then do what? 
Seek clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. If you are not to be judging in any way, shape, or form any critical discernment and conclusions and evaluation, then how can you take anybody's speck out of anyone else's eye? You are not to, if we apply this to a, a, a condemnation of all, sort of all kinds of judgment, there's no way to judge that a brother has a speck if there is no judgment. And then notice verse 6. I didn't even read it. But do not give to the dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them under feet, underfoot and turn to attack you. Well, you have to discern and judge what a dog and a pig is to be able to obey this command. Now, we'll get to that next week. Don't get caught up in this verse. We'll look at this next week. Verses 15 and 16. Beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Well, how are you to know what their fruits are? How can you make any judgment, any discerning evaluation and criticism on someone's fruits if we are not to judge? So Jesus cannot be saying, make no determination, no opinion on someone else's spiritual condition. So what does he mean? I will go back to the thing that's right on the screen, the command, don't judge hypocritically. I'll lay this out in a minute, then I'll give you some other things here. I believe in context that you read verses 1 through 5, and you should be able to see clearly that the problem is hypocritical judgment, not judgment in totality. Because verse 2 says, because, judge not, that you be not judged because, and here's why you shouldn't judge, because there's a wrong kind of judgment. It's using a measure for others that you don't use for yourself. And then he goes on to talk about what that looks like in verses 3 through 4, and then he qualifies that with the word hypocrite in verse 5. You hypocrite. Someone who uses a different standard for themselves than for others, a different measure for themselves than others, is a hypocrite. Don't judge. Don't judge how? Don't judge like this. Don't judge hypocritically. I believe that is the entire main point of what Jesus is saying. And then he gives all kinds of explanations and illustrations of what this looks like, the wrong kind of judgment. Well, there's some ways we can apply this and things I want to give that aren't necessarily the main point of the text, but can come out of the text. First of all, don't act and speak as if you have the authority to finally condemn. Don't act and speak as if you have the authority to finally condemn. John Stott said it this way, Jesus does not tell us here to cease to be men by suspending our critical powers, which help distinguish us from the animals. But he tells us here to renounce our presumptuous ambition to be God by setting ourselves up as judge and lawmaker. This is putting yourselves in a place of judge whereby you can condemn people to hell by your judgment of their spiritual condition. So the point here is, remember, you are not God. Have you ever had anyone have to remind you of that? in your family, you know, you are not God. You don't set the rules. You are not the final judge, jury, and executioner. Don't take God's place. And the only way we can have ourselves in that position is because we violate the second place here, the second point. Don't judge what you cannot know, someone's motives. Who can read the heart? God alone. You see, I know what they're thinking. I know why they did that. How many times have you condemned someone's motives without knowing what their motives are because they have not 
told you. You say, well, I can tell. I can see. I can see why they're doing that. I mean, I don't want to get too much. I've been doing this whole science school class on politics. Um, so I don't want to get too bogged down to it in, in preaching. But how many times have you seen something happen on the news? You say, I know why they said that. I know why he's doing that. I know why they're up to that. Did you somehow get the secret memo? Are you in? How, how do you know? Well, because I know that, I can then do what? I've got a judgment. Because I can, I can read motives and hearts. I've got perfect spiritual vision. You, no, you, you can't judge what you cannot know, and only God knows the hearts. We can assume right or wrong. We can guess right or wrong, but the only way to know someone's motives is for them to tell you. For them to tell you. And so you can't judge what you don't know. That's the wrong kind of judgment. And then third, don't be judgmental. Now, again, we can... We can overplay this, but there's a, there's a truth and a reality to this that we have to see. Well, what does judgmental mean? It means to be self-righteous, first of all. This is the Pharisees' great problem, is their self-righteousness. Therefore, they were judgmental people, arrogant, unmerciful, unfairly critical. It's not saying don't be critical at all. Of course we must be critical. Not all criticism is wrong, but unfairly critical, hasty in our criticism, prejudiced, motivated by a desire to condemn rather than motivated by helping others from sin to holiness. This is huge. What is your motivation by pointing out someone else's problem, by seeing that someone else is in sin? What do you want to accomplish? Do you want to hammer them into submission? Do you want to condemn them and grind them down and make them feel worse so you can lower them and raise yourself? Are you there to truly help people move from sin to holiness? Your, motiva- your heart motivation will change the way you respond to others. And judgmentalism is a, the problem here, not just judgment in general. So we must be reminded that any standard for righteous judgment must be the standard of the Almighty God. The only accurate, objective, and universal standard for creatures must be given to those creatures by the Creator. So we can only judge righteously when we judge by what standard? This standard, God's standard, and what the Pharisees had done, first of all, is they had taken the word of God and twisted it and turned it and changed it and then used it as a standard saying, no, this is what the word means, but they had changed it. So if you have the wrong standard, you're going to mess up every time. We must know the word of God and judge by the standard of the word of God. So by taking all of Scripture into account, we know that we... We are to be making judgments all the time. Why would God, in his divine grace, give us this gigantic book? Now, mine's bigger than most because i got a lot of man's notes in it. Why would God give us this standard for judgment and then tell us, by the way, don't ever judge? Why would he tell us all of these things that are right and wrong and then say, hey, you can't know right and wrong. Don't tell anybody they're right. Don't tell anybody. Why would he do that? He wouldn't. And so when we look at all the scripture, we understand what Jesus is addressing here is not judgment in general, is not critical thinking in general or discernment in general. It's a very specific kind of hypocritical judgment. Anytime you use a different standard for others than you use for yourself, you are judging wrongly. You are a hypocrite. Anytime you use a different measure for others than you use for yourself, you are judging hypocritically. Don't judge that way. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't judge. Well, why not? He gives an explanation. And that begins, first of all, in verse 1. Judge not, 
that you be not judged because or for with the judgment you pronounce. And so here's the reason. The reason you shouldn't judge others hypocritically is because you will be judged by your own measure. Judge not hypocritically, or you will be judged hypocritically, or you will be judged by your own hypocritical standard. If you take the absolute position on this verse, that the verse means don't judge at all, then you would have to take the second part of verse 1 to say, if you don't judge, no one will ever judge you. And some people take it that way. Hey, I don't judge anyone. As if we can get out of the judgment of God. The Bible's clear. Every person will be judged. Whether you judge anyone else or not, whether you're judgmental or not, whether you refrain from any discernment or not, every one of us will stand before the judgment of God. And so you can't get out of it by just being a non-judgmental person. No, that's not the point. But what we're talking about here, verse 2 clarifies you will be judged by the judgment you pronounce on others, by the measure you've used on others. So John MacArthur says it this way, self-righteous judgment is a boomerang. It becomes its own gallows. So others will use your own measure against you. And ultimately, the warning is that God will use your measure against you someday. Do you really want to be judged by God the way you judge others? You're hypercritical, unfairly critical, hasty, condemning judgment of others. Do you really want God to look at your life like you look at others? Oh, I I like the God who is merciful and kind, the God who forgives, the God who is patient, The God who is long-suffering. I want that God to judge me. But let me tell you what. Let me tell you about so-and-so. Let me tell you what I heard, what I saw. Let me tell you what I think about them. The warning here is God will use your standard against you someday. Is that what you want? None of us. Rarely, maybe hardly any of us want to be judged the way we judge others. And so what's the point Well, you need to be very slow and careful in your judgment of others. You must not be a hypercritical person. Measure others the way you want to be measured. Judge yourself by the same standard that you judge others. We all struggle so much with being consistent in our application. How often have you really blasted others, and then when you do the same thing, you want mercy and grace? You know, it's always interesting. I always find it interesting that that people can't stand a liar. But when they lie, it's just a little white lie. You know, it's not that big a deal. I didn't really mean it. Please, you should give, give a brother some grace, right? But whenever you do the same thing to them, there's no, that's, we all struggle with that. We struggle with that double standard in our life. We struggle by holding people to a higher standard than we hold ourselves, So we need to reject double standards, refuse to do this any longer, understanding the reason why is what Jesus is dealing with. And Jesus shows us what this looks like by asking two questions. And he also shows by asking these questions what the true problem is. The first question is the question of sight. The question of sight, he he asks this question, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice? I think these words are, are key. Why do you see... 
Why do you see the small sins in others but miss, not notice the big sins in yourself? So the illustration here is the illustration of specks and logs, splinters and planks. Maybe you have a translation that uses those words. In the context, it is clear that a speck is a small but not insignificant sin. And a log is a bigger sin than a splinter or a speck. The point being that the sin of the judgmental person is bigger than the sin of the person they are judging. Now the question I have for you is, have you ever had a speck of sawdust in your eye? Can you just feel it right now? I see people blinking. You're blinking more now than you were before. And not because you're falling asleep or waking up. If you can feel that, right? Can you imagine? Maybe some of you, have you ever had a splinter in your eye? Like a sliver of wood big enough to be seen? Sliver. Like, now, what happens when you get something like that in your eye? It hurts like crazy. What happens, what does your eye immediately start to do? Water like crazy. And what don't you want to do once you've closed your eye? I never want to open my eye again. I've got an issue with my eyes. Tracy can tell you all about that. This is a really difficult illustration for me because if you even talk about my eye, my eyes start to water. I don't want anybody touching my eye, getting close to my eye. My eye, I just, I don't know, something creeps me out about the eyes. That's why I will never wear contacts. I can't come close to my eye. <laughs> if, you, if you want to put an eye drop in my eye, I can barely keep my eye open long enough to get like a, 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 a never mind. It's a whole issue. The point here, you have a splinter in your eye. Has anybody ever had a plank in your eye? Has anybody like had a two-by-four in their eye? I mean, you go out and you cut wood. This is what I was thinking of. You cut wood with a chainsaw and you get some sawdust in your eye, so you try to usually, usually use protection. Or maybe you get a splinter in your eye. But how many times have you been cutting wood and the whole log got in your eye? <laughs> I, this is what I want. I wanted you to get the ludicrous nature of what Christ is saying here. Christ is saying... <laughs> How do you, or why do you see the splinter? Now, a splinter is significant, right? It's painful. It, it makes your eye water. It makes you close your eye. You don't, you, if you have a splinter in your eye, uh, someone says, hey, you know, could you read me this, this newspaper? Could you, could you, you, you don't drive with a splinter in your eye. You don't do anything with a splinter in your eye. Can you imagine how much worse it is when you had a whole log in your eye? Now, how can you, the person with the log in their eye, Happen to notice even something as significant as a splinter in anyone else's eye. Having a log in your eye means what? You can't see anything. You can't see anything with a splinter. You have enough trouble with a speck, but imagine a whole log in your eye. So why does someone with a log, why are they able to see splinters, see specks in other people's eyes? That's a question Jesus asks, and he doesn't give an answer at least right away. Because he asked a second question. This is the second question, the question of focus. How can you address the small sins in others while ignoring the big sins in yourself? So how can you possibly say to someone, let me help you get this speck out of your eye when you have a log sticking out of your own eye? I mean, how could anyone have the nerve to walk up to someone? Uh, a friend of mine in college had this picture on his wall. He was a, he was a really good sketch artist. Had a picture of all these people and this guy with a plank sticking out of his eye, swinging, saying, let me help you with your sin. And everybody's ducking because you can't get close to someone with a log to help them see anything in their eye. When someone comes to look at your eye, what do you have to do? Right? 
You know, the, the, they're going to come and they're going to get right up here because they're looking for that speck. They're looking for that splinter. How can you get that close with a log sticking out of your own eye? That's the question. It's a question of focus. How can you address sin in others with, while ignoring the big sin in your life? Now, this is a question Jesus asks. What's your answer? Why do you see something in others and miss something much larger than yourself? How come you go to others to help them when you haven't dealt with your big problem? How does that work? Now, I think Jesus gives the answer in the next two words, which is, I believe, the whole point of this text. What's the answer? Well, I'm not going to tell you yet because I've already told you. You should know it, but I'm going to hold out a little bit longer if you don't remember. What's the answer? Well, I ask a couple questions before I get to the answer. Do you think the person with the log is knowingly ignoring the log in their own eye? That's, I think, how a lot of people read this. The person has a log, and they, they know they have a big sin in their life, but they don't care. They're just a hypocrite who goes around ignoring, knowingly ignoring the sin in their own life. Do you think that? Do you think they see it, just refuse to deal with it? Now, that's, that's definitely possible and probable. You probably know people like that who know their own sin and just don't care, knowingly ignore it and go on. But I don't think that's what Jesus is addressing here. I believe they are blind to the log in their eye. They do not notice the log. They're not ignoring it. They don't see it. Why don't they see it? Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. That's what makes them the hypocrite. It's the double standard of verse 2. So when you apply a different standard, a different measure... You are, able to, you are able to judge yourself righteous while judging others unrighteous. And you can't see that you are doing it because your vision is hindered by the blinding log of self-righteousness. So a person with a log, how can they see a splinter in someone else's eye? They can't. That's the problem. But guess what they think? They think they can because self-righteousness not only blinds you to the log in your eye, it tells you on the flip side that you've got supernatural spiritual vision. So self-righteous people are the most blind people who think they have the clearest sight. Now, I think that makes point of Jesus' illustration here. I don't believe that people are willfully ignorant and willfully ignoring. I believe they're blinded by the log in their eye, so blinded they don't even know they have it. They can even become convinced that they're the only ones who see clearly. Have you been around self-righteous people? And when you deny what they're saying, when you try to point things out in their life, they become convinced and more hardened in self-righteousness that they're the only person who can see things in people's lives. They've been given the gift of discernment on such a high level that everyone else can miss it, but they alone can see it. That's dangerous. It's deadly. And so the only way for the vision to be cleared is by dealing with the underlying fundamental problem of unequal standards and measures. By God's grace, the self-righteous person must see the sin of self-righteousness and repent of it. Now, how can they see something they've been so blind to for so long? Well, they have to repent of hypocritical self-righteousness. Now, again, how can someone see what has blinded them for so long. And, and you can look at it later, but I'll turn there. 2 Samuel 
chapter 12 is a great example of this. 2 Samuel chapter 12. One of the greatest kings, a man after God's own heart, maybe the greatest, well, I would say this, the greatest king before Jesus in, in the nation of Israel is David. David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then to cover it up, he, he ended up having to murder, not having to, choosing to murder her husband. So he's committed adultery and murder, and God sends a prophet to him. Why does God send Nathan the prophet? He sends Nathan the prophet to him because he wants to open his eyes to his self-righteousness. And so he tells him a story. He says, there's a rich man. He's got all these lambs and all these sheep and all these goats. And a visitor comes, and he wants to kill the fatted lamb and give the lamb to the visitor. And so instead of killing one of his own, he goes to the neighbor. The neighbor has one lamb. It's his pet lamb. It's a lamb who's lived with him forever. Just listen to Nathan piling up all of the, the emotional parts of that. And he takes the lamb from this neighbor, takes his one lamb, the lamb that he loves. He kills the lamb and gives it to a stranger. So David's anger, verse 8, was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Can you believe it? The injustice, the unrighteousness, the wickedness of someone who would do such a heinous crime to steal the one lamb this man has and use it for his own benefit. Now this is the man who has just committed adultery and murder. He stole Uriah the Hittite's wife and killed him to cover it up. And what's he righteously indignant? Anger was kindled over a lamb. And notice what God does in his mercy and his grace. Nathan said, I'm sorry, that was verse uh, five. Nathan said to David, verse seven, you are the man. Only by God's grace, only through the ministry of other people, typically, will self-righteous people have their eyes opened to the blind, blinding nature of their own self-righteousness. And he uses a story, and he uses a man, and he brings David to his knees, and what does David do? He repents. He repents, and sackcloth, he cries out to God, and he repents for his sin. Now, once you repent, what does repentance look like? Well, according to Matthew chapter 7, it looks like this. You will deal with the biggest sinner and the biggest sin first. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. The self-righteous person overcomes self-righteousness by dealing with the log of self-righteousness and they deal with their sin first. They realize it's the biggest sin in the people that they know. And this act of humility deals a death blow to self-righteousness. So it's only when self-righteousness is dealt with that they can have the ability to clearly see anyone else's sin. So once that log is truly out of their eye, then they will be able to, notice very carefully, see clearly. Self-righteousness blinds. You can see nothing clearly. Not your own sin, not someone else's sin. But when that log is removed, and in humility and in self-criticism, you see your own sin, now you are finally able to have spiritual discernment, spiritual help to others. This is what the kingdom of God is all about. Matthew chapter 5 Right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, in verse uh, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to understand that you are unworthy before God, utterly dependent on God. This is the opposite of arrogant self-confidence. And arrogant self-confidence goes with self-righteousness. 
They have nothing to offer God, nothing to earn God's blessing. All this person can do is cry to God for mercy. So kingdom citizens are marked by humility. And chapter 7 starts off by saying, this is what arrogance looks like, self-righteous arrogance, and therefore repentance looks like humility, right back to the beginning of the sermon. Christians are marked by humility. And then verse 6, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They mourn their own sin. They see that their wretched situation is a result of their own sin. Not someone else's sin, not sin out in the world, but sin in me. Kingdom citizens are marked by repentance. Christians are humble people who repent of their own sin. And therefore, to be a self-righteous person, always pointing out everyone else's sin and never seeing the log in your own eye, that person's salvation is in question. So I ask you, are you a person claiming to be a Christian who has been humbled by the gospel? Are you a person who repents of sin? Are you a person who's open to criticism? Are you open to someone saying, hey, I think I see some self-righteousness in you? Me? Self-righteous? I would never be self-righteous. I could never commit that sin. Well, maybe you just condemned yourself with what you said. Are you a person marked by humility, marked by repentance? Have you realized that your sin has offended God? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Have you been transformed by the gospel? So that self-criticism becomes your first criticism. Self-criticism is your first criticism. Who's your harshest critic? Is it you or others? Now be careful. I'm not trying to give some sort of morbid introspection whereby you're always beating yourself up up for everything you've ever done wrong, slightly wrong, barely wrong. But in this case, the correction is self-criticism. And later in another passage, you can deal with too much self-criticism and uh, correct that. Let us see. Then your vision is cleared to help other sinners. Your vision is cleared to be able to help other sinners. So notice this judging others is still something we need to do. Even the self-righteous person is to judge others and to help others, but only after dealing with self-righteousness, only after clearing their vision. Galatians 6.1 is a key verse for this, and it talks about considering your own sin, considering yourselves, being humble. So John Chrysostom, the great early saint of the early church, said this, correct your brother not as a foe, nor as an adversary, exacting a penalty, but as a physician providing medicines. Yes, and even more, as a loving brother anxious to restore and rescue. This is how we are to help others with specks in their own eye. So judging righteously demands that we deal with self-righteousness so that we help other lesser sinners in humility. There is a righteous judgment And we must be practicing righteous judgment. 